Hi, and welcome to One Great History, a podcast all about the great and not-so-great parts of Winnipeg history. I'm Sabrina. And I'm Alex. And we're joined by our friend and producer, Nick. Howdy ho, neighborinos. And you guys don't know what the episode about <laughs> is today at all. No, you no, won't you, tell us. Yeah, you, you, you've, been, you've been very um, sneaky and vague about this one. Which has been killing me. <laughs> Normally we talk a little bit about what the topic's going to be, but I've told you it's about a kidnapping and nothing else, and I've been sitting on this for so long. <laughs> I feel like every other one of our friends knows about it, because I'm like, I have to tell someone. Yeah. But I can't tell Alex. <laughs> so, all they know is it's about a kidnapping. Yes, and I'm excited to find out who who is kidnapped and why. And... Oh, so much is going to happen. Okay. It's going to be a real roller coaster. So the episode is actually going to be part of a thing on Deer Lodge, like the hotel and the house that was there before the hospital. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, somehow I'm shocked that that's where the kidnapping episode is arising. I told you about this. Do you remember when I found out that there was a bear called Chad's Bear that used to drink soda? Yeah. Chad's Bear was at Deer Lodge, the oh, hotel. Okay. And I was like, I'm going to like look at the hotel and then sort of use that to segue into Chad's Bear. Okay. And then found something much weirder than Chad's Bear. Okay. So we're going to start at Deer Lodge. That's where my notes initially started. And then we're going to sort of spiral out from there and... One day we'll do a Chad's Bear episode, but probably it'll be a while. Okay. We've got a lot of bigger stuff on the docket that's not a bear that drank some soda and wrestled a few guys. I mean, that's probably the summary that the people need. <laughs> yeah. If you look it up, it's very strange. Yeah. So uh, the Deer Lodge we have today is a hospital in St. James. Um, it opened in 1916. Before that, it is a hotel. And then before that, it is a home. So the home is built by H- Hudson's Bay Company trader John Rowand, and it's inherited by his daughter Margaret in 1854. Margaret is married to James McKay. We know a lot more about him than we do about her, as is often the case in this sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So McKay is also the child of fur traders. He also works for the HBC, and they're kind of like a big name. We know the McKay boys. Yeah. Yeah. They're a big deal around here. Yeah. So McKay is a... Essentially, he's a tour guide. He shows people around. He wears a blue capote, and apparently his skill was getting people to their destination regardless of weather, as quickly as possible. Wow. Which leads to an anecdote where he actually carried the Hudson's Bay Company governor, George Simpson, on his shoulders as they waded through streams. That's so funny because I almost said, you know, those big McKay boys. No, he was the (laughs) the big McKay boy. So They're a large family. Yeah, apparently. (laughs) Big and sturdy enough to carry George Simpson across some streams to get where he needed to go. I'd be a little embarrassed to have someone carry me across a stream. Especially when it's like, I'm the governor of a big company. And this man had to carry me because I didn't want to get my feet wet. Yeah. And I work in the prairies where it's wet a lot of the time. Yeah, maybe just get better shoes. It's wet when we're recording this right now. <laughs> so after McKay marries Margaret, he works as his tour guide and sort of travels around. But when he's not traveling, he's living at the family home in St. James. At the time, it might have been called something like Reindeer Lodge. The name kind of changed. Okay. We don't know when it became Deer Lodge officially. Mm-hmm. But... It's the family home, and the pair of them are fairly well known in the community. They're both, like, pretty high up. Margaret's father is the chief factor out at Fort Edmonton. Mm -hmm. It's like, they're prestigious in terms of, like, the social status in the 1850s, 60s Red River. So they become kind of the, like, gathering hub between, like, old school Métis fur traders, new settlers. It's a hot spot for people coming to go visit. They would have, like, New Year's parties there and stuff. Yeah. And, like, we could probably do a full episode on McKay at some point, because he's a really interesting guy. Yeah. He was on the Council of Assiniboia. He actually left Red River during the Red River Rebellion, or Red River Resistance, because he was Métis and didn't want to side against his family and friends, but also wasn't opposed to us joining Confederation. 
Okay. So he just left briefly and then comes back. <laughs> Guess that's one day, one way to deal with that. Yeah. He's an interesting guy. But there's a lot of like weird anecdotes about the house. Most things involve people going there and then going hunting because it's St. James in the 1850s and 60s is outside of Winnipeg. Mm-hmm. It's a parish on the outskirts and it's closer to the wilderness than it is today. Right. And there's actually a pretty big bison herd outside of it as well. Mm. So... One of the sort of anecdotes that we have about Deer Lodge is that there's a commotion among the bovines of St. James Parish okay. when the McKay's bison get loose and start chasing cows around the neighborhood. Oh, no. um, so the fun fact I think I told a little bit about in our zoo episode is that the bison we have at the zoo are descendants of James McKay's bison. Right. He had like sold them to someone else who bought them and then sold them to the zoo later. Right. But one of McKay's bison's names is Big Tom. Oh. Yeah. So, like, they have a lot of big-name guests that come by, but the most, or one of their more esteemed one is a man named Lord Gordon Gordon. (laughs) 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 Yeah, I know. He is a Scottish lord who stays at the Mackays in the summer of 1873. Gordon's been in Winnipeg since October of 1872. He had been living out of the Monroe Boarding House downtown. It doesn't sound very nice, but apparently the Monroe Boarding House is one of the more fashionable boarding houses Ah, in downtown Winnipeg. I always think it would be fun to stay in a boarding house. Would you? You don't like people or noise. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think I have like a very romantic image of what it would be like. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't think you'd actually like one as someone that stayed in like a hostel before. (laughs) No, I wouldn't like a hostel. I want my own room. Okay. We can have breakfast together. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I mean... They don't make a lot of boarding houses anymore. It'd be hard to test this out. I might just be thinking of a bed and breakfast. I think you are. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like a boarding house is maybe a little less quaint. Yeah. Yeah. But this was one of the nicer boarding houses, so maybe it was a little bit more on the quaint side. We don't really know. Yeah. It was near Portage in Maine. We don't really know where it was anymore. Okay. It's not that important where he was staying, but when he comes to Winnipeg, it's a pretty big deal. We are in 1872, not like a huge... Oh, yeah. We're small. Yeah. We're not really on the map. We're not a city yet. We've just joined the country of Canada, so Mm -hmm. things are kind of up and coming. And when an actual aristocrat arrives in town, people take notice. Mm -hmm. This is huge. And what's also probably a big deal is that apparently Gordon is quite handsome. Okay. Um, He is described as having well-formed hands and feet and rich curling brown hair. Who doesn't love a man with well-formed hands and feet? (laughs) The first thing you notice, this guy's got normal hands. (laughs) So he is around 30, he's handsome, and he is rich. I mean, all the women in, in Red River must have been... Uh... Oh, all over him. Yeah. Apparently, he didn't have a lot of girlfriends. Okay. But he did make a lot of friends in town. So he befriends uh, Thomas Henry Pentland, who's not super important. He's just like a local guy who quickly becomes Gordon's hanger-on. Mm-hmm. But he also befriends some familiar names like Francis Cornish, oh. James McKay, John Christian Schultz. Okay. And the thing I'll say about Schultz is that when he died, someone once remarked, a pity we knew him. <laughs> so Schultz is not a great guy. He's not super relevant to the story. And Cornish is kind of insane. Oh, we'll talk more about Cornish. Don't you oh, worry. Yes. <laughs> and then he also befriends a guy named Walter Brown, who a source I found claimed seemed to prefer business and politics to dentistry, which was his job. <laughs> <laughs> so Gordon spends a lot of his time in Winnipeg and Manitoba, living quietly and going on hunting expeditions. And he says he's in town for his health. After okay. getting involved in kind of a lawsuit in New York that doesn't really talk about too much. Oh. So he's just staying in town for a little bit. He's recuperating. But he talks a bit about looking to purchase land for a Scottish settlement in the area, mm-hmm. which wouldn't have been, like, atypical for the time. There's lots of Scottish settlers still slowly coming in. Right. This is a bit later than we see, like, the Selkirk settlers arriving. Yeah. 
but people are looking to settle and buy land. And then Gordon spends the summer or the spring of 1873 off hunting for grouse and then comes to stay with the McKays in Is this a real lord or is he a <laughs> Just wait. Okay. Just wait. So he's staying at the he's staying at the McKay's though Pentland, and then James is off on business. So it's just Margaret, Gordon, and some other friends. And most of his stays have just been spent hanging out on the porch, chatting with people that went by because it's a small town. That's what you do. Right. You drive around and talk to your neighbors. And then on the evening of July second, Gordon is kidnapped. <gasps> yeah. Oh no. <laughs> at around eight thirty p.m., Gordon is grabbed from behind by two men, bound hand and foot, and pulled into a wagon belonging to a John Benson. That's, I feel like we don't hear about a ton of kidnappings these days. No, and not like big dramatic ones. Or no. Normally or like, it's a domestic dispute. Yeah. It's not like Especially whatever like this is. Especially like a grown man being just like taken on the street. That's yeah. crazy. In like a residential neighborhood essentially yeah. too. So there's three men including Benson and someone does notice because it's like an evening in July. People are outside. Right. So the McKay's neighbor, Robert Tate, sees what happens and actually rushes to intervene, but is scared off when the kidnappers brandish a gun at him. Oh. So he leaves. And then the carriage rushes off towards Upper Fort Gary, where Gordon is ferried across the river and rushed towards the American border. Oh. Yeah. Is it the people in New York? I was going to ask you why you think he's being kidnapped. I think it's maybe about that trouble in New York. <laughs> I think you're probably on to something. Yeah. Because... Uh, believe it or not, Lord Gordon Gordon's not an actual Scottish lord. I knew it! <laughs> He's a con man. You know what gave it away? The name? No. I was willing to, I don't know, British <laughs> lords have weird names. It's him being handsome. That's what did it for him? Yeah. Real lords aren't handsome. Hold on, I'll show you a picture. He's not actually that handsome. Okay. I think maybe he was just like rich and we're like, hey, there's not a lot of guys in town. Yeah. <laughs> I kept thinking of Lady Baden-Baden from, uh, do you ever see the cartoon The Raccoons? No. no. There was a chicken... Or like a hen, and she was Lady Baden-Baden. Okay. So, Lord Gordon Gordon. Lord Gordon Gordon and Lady Baden-Baden. I think they're in cahoots. <laughs> Maybe, who knows? This is what he looks like. Eh, I mean, okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's a glowing review of a human person. Yeah, like, he's, he's, he's an okay-looking man. He's fine. Yeah. He looks normal, right? He, yes, he looks like a normal man. Yeah. Not, like, exceptionally handsome. No, I think you might just be right that he was... New. Yeah. And, like, youngish and wealthy. And possibly a lord. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, Lord Gordon Gordon's a con man. He's not a Scottish lord. Okay. And when I was writing this, I was trying to figure out how much I wanted to say early on, because what people in Winnipeg know is very little. Yeah. They know that he is a sort of beloved local who has been abducted in the middle of nowhere. They don't know anything about what happened. Right. This guy who's, like, quickly bef befriended all of the, like... Well, Most, the big names yeah. in town. These are popular people in Winnipeg that like him and want him to stay. Yeah. So, Gordon hadn't been entirely lying about his past. The New York lawsuit thing is real. Okay. So that wasn't, like, a weird lie he'd made up to explain why he was there. He had been cagey, but when he says he's involved in a lawsuit, what he means is that he stole a million dollars from oh, Jay Gould. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess people would be annoyed about that. Yeah, and... Oh boy, he'd done a lot more. Okay. So the first appearance of Lord Gordon Gordon, then going by a Mr. Gordon, appears in Minneapolis in 1871. Mm -hmm. He just sort of appears out of nowhere in the city. He checks into a local hotel as G. Gordon, and people only find out he's a lord when he receives a letter addressed to Lord Gordon Gordon. Okay. So, like, my guess would be he had someone send him a letter so word would spread, and it became like a oh. thing where he was being secretive and in town and had to, like, try and, like, track him down, right? Right. Oh, you man. have to earn his favor. 
that's really clever to be like, oh, I'm not telling people I'm a lord. Oh, no, you found out. Yeah. So, like in Winnipeg, people in Minneapolis get very excited when they're like, oh, there's a lord in town. That's very interesting. Mm -hmm. So, they start to try and befriend him. And Gordon quickly inserts himself into the upper crust of Minneapolis society. And he befriends John Loomis, who is the commissioner of the Northern Pacific Railroad. And Gordon then convinces him that he is looking for land for a small Scottish settlement and just needs the funds to get it started. Hmm, I think we've heard that before. So Lewis falls for this. Okay. Gives Gordon $45,000 and then takes him on a whirlwind tour of sort of Minneapolis area. Right. So they have a pretty big touring party. There's Gordon, Loomis, two land surveyors, Loomis's secretary, attorney, a personal assistant for Gordon who's referred to as a gentleman's tiger. What? I... I cannot find what this term means. I assume it's a butler. Okay. I assume he just has a butler with him. There's also 40 horses, 12 men to pitch tents, a French cook, and waiters. That's insane. So who's paying all these people? Is Loomis. Oh, jeez. Yeah. That's insane that you can just show up in a town and be like, I'm a lord. And people are like, here's thousands of dollars. He apparently often wore like a kilt hmm. and like a tartan. So he looked like he was yeah. Scottish. This and is the, like the Anna Delvey I was thing. just going to say it's like Anna Delvey because yeah. I was like, that's insane. You could just do that. But I guess you can kind People of People are still, still do just that. doing that. Yeah. yeah. He also had like fancy cutlery with like the Gordon family crest on it, which oh, is wow. not like cheap at the time. So right. people find out you have that. It does mean you have money from somewhere, right? Right. I guess that's the same way like current con people will spend money on like nice clothes or yeah. like renting a fancy car. Yeah, totally. I to mean, to look the part. Same thing, just slightly different techniques. I don't know if anyone's going to be impressed by your, like, nice knife and fork set yeah. today. <laughs> Might not win as many people over. You can tell I'm a lord by this spoon. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I wish. I got it from the MCC for 10 cents. <laughs> so, this works, and Loomis drives him around through a bunch of towns in sort of Minnesota. Along the way, uh, Gordon manages to financially destroy a man called Tuttle. Okay. There's not much about him. Um, he convinces Tuttle to invest in the land schemes and then Tuttle just loses all of his money oh, in it. Geez. And then near Pelican Rapids, Gordon selects a 50 acre plot of land and calls the town Loomis hmm. after his friend. Ah, oh, that's also clever. Yeah. Hey, to flatter this guy who's giving you all the money. It works well. So this all happens in like late fall, early winter of 1871. And then once the plot is selected, Gordon says he has to go to New York to prepare for the arrival of about a hundred Scottish settlers. Okay. And then he leaves for New York with letters of introduction with him. Do you know what those are? Kind of. I mean, I think it's basically what it sounds like. Right? Yeah. It's a letter sort of vouching for you. Being yeah, like, it would be like texting your friend saying, hey, so-and-so is in New York. Yeah. He's a friend of mine. He's cool. Can you show him around? Right. That's essentially what that is. Yeah. But it's just a letter you bring with you places. And Gordon gets this from a number of people in Minneapolis who know people in New York. So he very quickly makes his way into New York upper crust as well. So he befriends like Horace Greeley and he just, he makes a bunch of people, okay. of friends essentially. And when he reaches New York in January, it's 1872, and he's staying with the Belden family and then gets a hotel room at the Metropolitan Hotel where he spends money quite lavishly. Mm-hmm. And he begins to sort of make friends with some of the railway tycoons in Winnipeg are in New York who are currently involved in the Erie War. Uh-oh. Which is not like... Yeah. It's about the lake and the railroad. It's not scary. Okay. <laughs> Unless you're scared of the stock market. <laughs> I'm a little scared of the yeah. stock market. So we don't want to delve too deep into this because it's stock market politics circa 1870s New York. <laughs> and it's not... Fascinating. Su- yeah. 
So essentially what it is, is it's a fight for control of the Erie Railroad. Okay. Led by a bunch of sort of New York bigwigs where they keep manipulating the stock market to like lower the prices and then buy someone out or like bankrupt someone and then buy his shares of the stock and then gain control. So, so it's not a real war. It's just people selling. No, it's a bunch of paper. Yeah, it, there's not a lot of actual violence involved. Right. <laughs> so, the big players in this would be uh, Jay Gould and a James Fisk. They were the current big names in the Erie Railroad. They defrauded like who was it? Cornelius Vanderbilt out of a bunch of money. Okay. So like, Gould is the one that we need to focus on because he's the one that gets involved with Gordon. Mm-hmm. Because when Gordon arrives in Winnipeg, there is now a power vacuum because James Fisk has been murdered. Oh. Not due to railroad-related stuff. He had a mistress, and it spiraled out of control. Okay. <laughs> but oh, then, there's a lot going on. Oh, yeah, no, I had to really whittle this down. There's a lot of people I had to leave out. Yeah. There's a lot of New York stuff going on here. Okay. It's chaos. But essentially what this means is there is now a spot available with a bunch of stocks that could be bought out, and Gould could get more control. Right. And Gordon does something very clever here, and then he doesn't talk to Gould directly. He just starts dropping hints about having shares. Ah. In the railroad at parties. Okay, so that Gould will then come and find him. So the gossip gets around that, like, Gordon has money, he's looking to invest more, he already owns stocks. So Gould seeks him out mm-hmm. to say, like, hey, we could team up. Man. Yeah. How do you get that good at talking to people? <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea. So what Gould learns about Gordon is that Gordon is claiming to own $30,000 in shares, and then he controls $20,000 more for his friends in England. Hmm. Gordon wants to name three English directors for the company, but he's willing to let Gould name others so long as his friend from his friend that he met in New York, Horace Greeley, could be one of them. Right. And that at 22, Gordon was the youngest member of the House of Lords, and he had completed an important diplomatic mission because he was the only man capable of coping with the Bismarck of Prussia. (laughs) Okay. And Gould buys all of this and then gives him some, like, stock in both the Erie Railroad and some other companies. And then just also some cold hard cash. Why is he just giving him money? Well, this is meant to show Gordon that he can trust Gould. Gould is trying to buy his favor. Okay. What he's not expecting is for Gordon to immediately sell the stock he receives. (gasps) Right. And Gould then threatens to arrest Gordon if he doesn't return the money that he gave him. Gordon returns some of it, but not all of it. And then he is arrested for felonious conversion of stock. Huh. Okay, so yeah, finance is not my area but essentially you're not supposed to sell a bunch of stock that you just obtained okay something about market fluctuations is my understanding sure. of it regardless gordon is arrested okay his bail is set at thirty-seven thousand dollars, and it is paid by a horace clark and af roberts they have a bail company okay essentially the way it works is they pay for your bail and then you pay them back right, later it's a bail bond yeah essentially got it and gordon does stand trial in the middle of may 1872 oh he doesn't skip on his bail just wait okay <laughs> So when he's on the witness stand, he starts to talk about his past a little bit to try and explain his credentials and that he is who he says he is. Yeah. So he says that his father is a duke, his mother was twice married, and he was born from her first marriage, so he is the stepson of the duke. Okay. Or something like that. I don't know. Sure. And his father has died. His baptized name is Gordon Harcourt Gordon. And then, Harcourt. Yeah. And then Gould brings in a professional genealogist to try and debunk <gasps> this claim. Okay. I don't know how any of that goes. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> uh, darn. I'm so sorry we do not have the time to get into all of this. <laughs> A lot happened in New York, and a lot's going to happen after this point. Okay. So, Gordon also lists some relatives that he has sort of in Europe that they could talk to to prove his credentials. Mm-hmm. At which point, Gould begins to snoop around a bit more, because he's trying to discredit this guy, and so is the prosecution. Right. And they track down the people he lists in Europe, 
And they all say one thing. They do not know a Lord Gordon Gordon. Wow. This does not matter because the next day when Gordon is due to stand trial, he does not appear. <laughs> he is gone. Okay, so he's like, you can go talk to my relatives. Just knowing, knowing that they, are, they don't exist. He they don't exist. The time to track them down and then right. use that leeway to escape. Oh, man. And he's stolen a million dollars at this point. <laughs> There are rumors that he is heading out to Montreal or Toronto. No one really knows there's an attempt to follow him and he quickly, they lose him. I mean, in those days, you could just go to another town and you're gone, essentially. Yeah, and that's what he does, because in October of 1872, he appears at Monroe House. There you go. <laughs> I It's it's kind of wild to me that he didn't change his name. Maybe no. it's because he had the spoons. <laughs> he didn't want to <laughs> She's invested him. too much in the Gordon name to give it up yeah. now. And what's incredible is that this story completely escapes Winnipeg. Wow. It does not have a single like, mention. We're, we're not getting the New York papers here. <laughs> no. But, like, this is a big deal. Yeah. It makes other Canadian papers. It's in the Halifax newspapers, British Columbia newspapers. It's in Toronto newspapers. It just doesn't hit Winnipeg. Huh. And also, I don't know if people in Winnipeg would have been like, ah, oh, you, you dirtbag. How dare you do this to a rich guy? I think That's they might funny. not have been to a post. Because in, in, our, in my last Milk episode, I was trying to see if the New York uh, swill milk scandal... <laughs> <laughs> made it made it to Manitoba papers and it didn't. Apparently, we just like didn't care what was going on in New York at that point. Oh, weird. Yeah. yeah. So like, there's no one in Winnipeg knows anything about this. So this is we'll find out more as sort of the kidnapping thing goes on. Right. But in July of 1873, a guy they like has been kidnapped. Yes. And really, Gordon's downfall here is just in his proximity to Minneapolis. Right. Should have gone further. He should have gone further. He should have probably not gone somewhere where people from Minneapolis keep going up. Yeah. <laughs> Minneapolis and Winnipeg run a very, they run a trade route along the Red River. People go up and down all the time, even today, for stuff like concerts and shopping. Yeah, yeah. It's a really common voyage people take yeah. even then. <laughs> so, um, in early, so in like late June, early July, Gordon's actually spotted by two people from Minneapolis who are just in Winnipeg on business. Oh. They're downtown shopping. Like this, is this is prior to the kidnapping. This kidnap is prior to the kidnapping. Okay. Now we're getting to how the kidnapping plot is hatched. Okay. Because that's also a very wild story. Okay. Okay, so he's spotted by a George and Miriam and um, Lauren Fletcher of Minneapolis. They're both in town, like, looking at logging stuff, I think. Right. Gordon's still living downtown. They just spot him in the street and go, that looks like that guy. The guy who said he was going to make a Scottish settlement and then, like, went to New York and never came back. So, yeah, um, both of them recognize Gordon. And Fletcher happens to be a friend of the mayor of Minneapolis, George Brackett, and telegraphs him. Brackett is, in turn, friends with A.F. Roberts, the man who posted his bail. (gasps) Okay, so they're like they're not just like oh this guy said he was gonna do this thing and then never showed up again. They're like no, fully this guy has this guy has stolen, stolen money from people money. we know. Got it. And worth noting, um, Horace Clark has died by this point in the story, so AF Roberts is on the hook for the entire thirty-seven thousand that Gordon skipped oh, on. Okay, so like he's on the hook for that money. Right. So he has like a vested interest in getting Gordon back. Right. So they begin to hatch a plan to bring Gordon back to America to stand trial. They maintain, or they get an American warrant for Gordon's arrest on the ground that wherever common law, wherever common law prevailed, regardless of national boundaries, such a document was effective. So is that essentially saying they can come and get him in Canada? Yeah, that's essentially what they believe. Right. I don't know if that's, okay. Yeah. So, and then Lauren Fletcher begins to organize a kidnapping party. He gets <laughs> Minneapolis cops and Michael Hoy and Owen Keegan to come to Winnipeg. They're joined by L.R. Bentley, who owns a business at Portage and Maine. And it's at Portage that they begin to plan the kidnapping plot. <laughs> the plan is really, really simple. It's that Bentley goes to see if James McKay is at his house, goes by a few more times, talks to Gordon and Margaret, 
And then at 8.30 in the evening, Holly and Keegan appear with a gun and a, <laughs> and a coach that they got from John Benson. They just paid him for it. Like, right. this guy's not actively involved. He was just paid to do something by some cops and went, this seems legit. Sure. And rolled along with it. And then they grab Gordon, tie him up. They go across the river and then head towards the Emerson border crossing. So were they just hoping that James McKay wasn't going to be around? Was that why they were checking for him? Probably. Because okay. he's, he's, like, he's a big name provincial. Man. A strong man. And also, like, he's like an active member of the provincial government at right. this point. Okay. He's involved. You wouldn't yes. really want to get him necessarily yeah. involved in. You don't your, want to brandish a gun at James McKay. And your dubiously legal kidnapping plot. Right. So I'm going to take a quick detour here for um, any Morris listeners out there. And by that, I mean <laughs> like my aunt and my uncle okay. and maybe my teachers from high school. Um, today it takes like an hour and a half to get to Emerson from uh, Winnipeg. By horse and buggy, it would have taken about a day. Okay. I couldn't quite do the math on how fast a horse and buggy was going. <laughs> I tried. I genuinely tried. But you would have to stop in Morris. Ah. And the kidnapping party does stop in Morris. Okay. So at the time, it's called Scratching River. It wasn't officially really anything. It's a small right. settlement for people to stop by and get food. And they stop at a inn called Galley's. Mm-hmm. This is no longer there, obviously. But um, it was an inn, post office, and shop that was mostly used for travelers passing through. It's owned by William Galley, who also owned a brickworks in town. The Brickworks is, like, a historic site in town that's just a field where it's like, the Brickworks oh. were here. It used to be a thing. Yeah. So Galley had brought out the previous inn, and he posted a bunch of ads in the free press for this new inn opening in Scratching River where he promised to serve more than boiled potatoes. <laughs> so that's where everyone wow. stops for food. I mean, it's pretty fancy. You could get a baked potato there. Maybe, yeah. And then some tea. And then you'd head off. Right. And Gordon has... Apparently, Gordon recognizes that Hoy and Keegan actually know William Galley mm-hmm. and just stays quiet. He doesn't tell anyone. He just goes along with it. Oh. Yeah. And then after breakfast, the crew keeps going and they probably could have made it across the border if someone hadn't immediately talked. Okay. <laughs> so Lauren Fletcher stays in Winnipeg. Uh-huh. And despite him being a member of the Minneapolis House of Representatives, he thinks, I should tell people about what just happened. The moment he sees them across the river, he's like, well, it's done. Cross my hands with that. What? And then he starts talking to people. Why? And he talks to one notable person, um, which is Gordon's lawyer. What? Why would he tell his lawyer that his client? I do not know. I have no idea. But Gordon's lawyer is also a pretty prominent Winnipeg character. Who is it? Do you want to guess? I have. I have no idea who it is. We've mentioned him already. Is it Cornish? It's Cornish. No. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Gordon's lawyer is Winnipeg's future first mayor, Francis oh E. Cornish. And Cornish will also be a future episode eventually, because, oh Cause boy. Nuts. Yeah, uh, Cornish is maybe the biggest dirtbag <laughs> of all time. <laughs> so, like, he commits election fraud. He, like, burns an effigy of the prime minister on Main Street. He yeah. puts himself on trial to acquit himself. Like, he's not a nice person. No. But a lot of the, like, bigger scandals he'll commit are in the future. In 1872, he's just Gordon's lawyer. Got it. Who is like, why did you kidnap my client? (laughs) So then Cornish starts to talk. And he begins to talk to Schultz, as well as the Attorney General, Henry Clark. Okay. And they send out a telegram to the border crossing. Ah. Yeah. To be like, hey, in fact, you cannot take people across the border so the customs officers of the pemina crossing receive a telegram that says five americans kidnap gordon commonly called lord gordon and are running him out it is supposed by your way 
Arrest all parties if they can be found. Get all assistance necessary. So at this point, I guess, do they still think that Gordon is, like, on the up and up? Yeah, they still think Gordon's okay. This has been, like, a matter of hours. Right. So they just know that he's in town to recuperate from some sort of lawsuit in New York. But and also, people like, have taken him. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it's because it's been less than a day. So when they would they have found out, I guess, yeah. They would have no idea what's going on. Absolutely right. none. Unless, like, Fletcher may have told someone something, but no one seems to care that much. Right. So the telegram reaches the border crossing before the kidnapping party does. Mm -hmm. So when the Americans arrive, the border agents stop them and they basically ask Gordon point blank, have you been kidnapped? (laughs) Or like, are you here of your own free will? And Gordon goes, no. Wait, he says no. No, he's not here of his own free will. Yes, he has been kidnapped. And then at this point, they arrest Hoy and Keegan and send them up to Winnipeg by a steamboat. Okay. Gordon also does, but in... Not tied up, so it's a nicer way back than he had the way down. And then, once they get back to Winnipeg, they also arrest Fletcher. Okay. Like, anyone involved has been arrested. What is going on with Fletcher? He's made bad choices. Oh, so many bad choices. Also a guy named George Miriam who was involved who gets arrested. He's... We're not going to talk about him too much. There's too many guys already. But, um... Around the point that they get stopped at the border crossing, the carriage driver they hired is beginning to regret his choices. (laughs) So, he actually does an interview later on... Where he talks about his experience. Okay. And at the start of the interview, he says, I naturally believe that the Minneapolis chief of police, when he said everything was regular, I knew every trail in the country and I could have got him across the line without anyone being the wiser. But I was doing a lot of thinking as we drew near the Emerson border. I didn't like this job as much as I did at first. This is my first and last experience of a kidnapping and I was as innocent as a babe. Well. Gordon and I were good friends right until the end. (laughs) You know what? I bet they were. I bet Gordon was, like, schmoozing with the the yeah. driver to try and be like, maybe don't take me across and also, the border. And also, he's just paid to do a job, and then I think along the way was like, yeah. well, That's this funny. was a bad idea, but also these guys have guns. <laughs> That's so funny, too, because I feel like now, if you participated in a kidnapping, you'd be, like, on a adre- uh, you know, high on adrenaline the whole time. Yeah. They were driving in a horse and buggy for, like, a full day. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like regret would start to set in around, so like, fast. hour 14. Yeah. <laughs> and you're like... Like, what do you do to kill time? I There's don't know. Not a lot of small talk you can make with... Talk the, to the man you've just you kidnapped. <laughs> you're right. So, the group had planned for failure. They had made code messages for Fletcher to send if things had gone right or gone wrong. If the plan had gone well, the message was supposed to say... Okay, return today. If it failed, it was supposed to say, too high, can't purchase, have written. Okay. So they send the second message, but it's a few days later because the entire party's in jail. And there is apparently a second message sent by Fletcher. We don't know if it was actually sent or not. It might just be like a rumor at this point. Mm -hmm. But the second message was sent to the mayor of Minneapolis. It says, I'm in a hell of a fix. Come at once. (laughs) And this is the start of a full-scale international incident. Oh, no. So... Perspectives at the time differed on what was happening. Yeah. Pretty drastically. From the Canadian point of view, a bunch of Americans have crossed the border to kidnap a member of the Commonwealth. Yeah. Which show a pretty blatant disregard for a relatively newly established Canadian border. Right. Government and laws. And I think it's important to remember that in the 1870s, there was still like a kind of present threat of both an American or a Fenian invasion across the border at any time. Like there's a whole secret service created to prevent this from happening. Yeah. I mean, I think like one of the only things that maybe stopped an American invasion was the American Civil War, which hadn't happened that long ago. Yeah. So like there's still a threat that this could happen. And this seems kind of like that. Yeah. Um, from the American point of view, on the other hand, a number of American men are essentially being held in jail for no reason. 
Right, because they went to get a, like, escaped criminal. criminal. And they had a warrant. Yeah. Yeah. And you can tell that the American media, at least, is not happy based on the newspaper reports that come out about all of this. Okay. So uh, the St. Paul Pioneer writes on August 1st saying, Our people should make ready. They denounce the crime and they call the Canadian authorities corrupt and then declare that they won't put an obstacle in the way of the Fenians if they want to invade and take the colony. Oh. So they're no longer going to fear if there's going to be a Fenian raid on Winnipeg. They also write, if any other plan should be preferred, it should be well matured, but there should be no delay in preparation. It should be swift, silent, and terrible. Jeez, settle down. And in response, the Manitoba Free Press writes, the Minnesota Press seemed to have thrown aside all notions of propriety and common sense. This is the way the case stands. Fletcher et al. in the eyes of the Manitoba people have committed a grave crime and no amount of twaddle about common law will convince them to the contrary. This just feels like maybe people need to meet up and talk to each other, not by telegram. Yeah. To sort this out. Probably. But at this point, it is a full-scale legal issue. So, yeah. like, a couple local politicians talking isn't going to do a whole lot. Right. And I guess, like, probably things like cross-border criminals had not been, like, dealt with in terms no, of, this like, be... how do we deal with this internationally? Yeah. Like, what's the extradition policy on yeah. getting this guy anywhere? <laughs> like, Winnipeg barely exists. How do we deal with the paperwork? Yeah. Also, we're kind of a city of weird con men. Yeah. <laughs> Especially in, 18, in the 1870s. Yeah. That's what most of our politicians were. <laughs> so they hold a preliminary hearing in Manitoba to decide if the crimes are serious enough, are serious enough to warrant like a full-scale charge and trial. Mm-hmm. And the preliminary trial itself is a huge spectacle. The prisoners are held in Upper Fort Garry. They are denied American representation because it's just a hearing. It's not a trial. They don't need legal representation quite yet. Okay. I don't know. I'm also not like an 1870s law expert, so... <laughs> A lot of sort of blind spots for me in this episode. (laughs) But um, the Manitoba Herald actually runs full transcripts of court interviews for months after this. Like, it goes on from July until, like, early September. They're still running interviews that happen in court. The free press is like, we may have been a bit romantic in how we were talking about it. Like, people were really invested in this case. And the American consul in Winnipeg gives a full statement to the press trying to convince people that the Americans were justified and the warrant was correct. Mm Mm-hmm. And then the Attorney General, Henry Clark, spends a full day tearing this and everyone in jail to shreds about this. Huh. So, Clark's closing speech takes two hours. The Manitoba Herald has to abridge it. Uh, Yeah. I believe I sent you the picture of the paper I was trying to read. Oh, you did? I Yes. That's what I was reading. Yeah. The closing script. It is four columns of text in the tiniest imaginable font. Yeah. And it's essentially Clark trying to argue that they knew the warrant wasn't valid. They'd obtained it. Right. But they had doubts. So it wasn't a good faith kidnapping, essentially. Okay. Also, I mean, even if you do have a warrant, I feel like what you do is not show up and grab the man. Yeah. Brandishing a gun, right? Wouldn't you get in touch with the local authorities? Yeah, you make a good point. Because this is essentially what Clark argues in the closing speech. Okay. I did take part of it that's a little bit more interesting. A lot of it delves into like biblical law okay it's the 1870s yeah but um part of his argument goes what is the proof of good faith did they apply to any recognized authority in this country for that authority and assistance which they know they should have obtained Mm -hmm. if their object had been to act legally and like honest men no did they apply to their own consul no the only proof that want oh god this thing is like a tongue twister (laughs) is the thing because it's like 1870s legalese okay (laughs) The only proof that was wanting of their absence of good faith, they have furnished themselves by their own statements in this court. Hoy's instructions mention letters which have been produced in court to the consul, 
to Mr. McTavish, Mr. Devlin, to other people well-known in the community. Did they deliver these? No, they were found on their person. The object was not to make this business known, well knowing that it was most illegal, and if known, their object would be frustrated. Is this not perfectly plain? So they're saying that they... These guys had letters on them yeah. to be like to explain what they were there to and do. And they didn't deliver and they them. They didn't deliver them. Yeah. Uh, Clark continues The worst, the most damning presumptive against the prisoners as to their want of good faith, showing conclusively that they knew that they were doing was and is illegal and outrageous, is the fact they never sought the assistance or authority of any public officer. Mm-hmm. No, they took the law into their own hands and at the muzzle of a revolver. And by brute force, they attempted and nearly succeeded in doing that, which they knew they could not have done legally and legitimately by applying to the courts. Huh. So, yeah, that's essentially the argument, is that they didn't really talk to anyone. The fact that they, like, hatched a kidnapping plot quietly in, like, a business. Yeah. And and then tried to, like, rush across the border as fast as possible. And didn't go talk to, like, I don't know, the chief of police or something. Yeah, like, there's a lot of options here that aren't kidnap a man in the dead of the night. Yeah. Try and make it to the border before anyone notices what you've done. Oh, man. So to no one's surprise here, probably, uh, they said the case will go to trial. Mm-hmm. And all of the men are denied bail. And what's going on with Gordon? He's hanging around. He's just hanging out? He's just around. <laughs> he has to, like, testify at the trial that he was kidnapped. So he's right. around for a bit of this. But is it are local people not being like, wait a minute, this no. Gordon guy. <laughs> no. no. We still love him. We still love him. <laughs> So, outside of Winnipeg, we're, like, it's going to trial, people are interested, Gordon's just hanging around, and no one has as many questions as they should. People above Winnipeg are working so hard to stop this from spir- spiraling into essentially a war. Right. Because that's where it could have gone. Yeah. So, our Lieutenant Governor Alexander Morris gets involved, as does Prime Minister John A. MacDonald. Wow. So, like, Morris is talking to MacDonald. At one point, MacDonald tells Morris, like, do not talk to the American authorities. Everything should go through Ottawa and Washington now. Wow. We're cutting this off provincially. That's so crazy. It's bonkers. Then on the American end, um, MacDonald and Lord Dufferin actually wind up sort of lobbying the American government. They actually go to the president of the states in the 1870s, which is Ulysses Grant. That's so nuts that the... Our respective national leaders need to deal with this. What is kind of just like a weird situation that happens. So like Grant is involved in what happens next. Wow. It's crazy. It's so much involvement in like a weird kidnapping trial. (laughs) That in the grand scheme of things probably isn't that important. No. (laughs) So eventually what works out is that McDonald and Lord Dufferin in the American government agrees to have the Manitoba government release the prisoners upon a guilty plea. Mm -hmm. They'll serve a sort of like, one day in jail thing to serve out their time, and then they'll be released. So they plead guilty on September 16th. They serve a sentence of a single night in jail, and they are let go. So it's just like, and no more kidnapping. (laughs) And then the international incident is resolved. Okay, that's That's the end of it. But, like, it was apparently looking pretty dicey there based on the, like, frantic telegram sent between government officials from Morris, or from Winnipeg to Ottawa to the States and back up. I mean, I do, like, I kind of get it, you know, because... Like, and also probably the Americans who had been conned by him are pissed off. Oh, yeah. And they want their money back. Yeah. And, like, also, in their eyes, again, they had a valid warrant and they're yeah. just being denied it. Yeah. Like, he he was legitimately a criminal. Yeah. And now we are harboring their criminal, essentially. Yeah. And in our eyes, it's like, well, we're new. Yeah. And people are crossing our border and we're very scared that the Americans will invade at any yeah. moment. <laughs> so, in the ensuing months of all of this, Cornish seems to have at least started to have some doubts okay. about Gordon's reliability. Because it takes a con man to know one. I was just going to say. If anyone's going to sort of cotton on this, it might be Cornish. 
So at some point, Cornish actually goes out to visit Gordon, who's living in Headingley at this point, and asks for his money. Mm-hmm. And Gordon threatens to fight him and he doesn't get paid. <laughs> well, here's the thing. Maybe. Okay. So I did actually pay for a subscription to the New York Times to read about oh, this wow. in New York. Yeah. Um. Later on, the New York Times publishes a story in about August of 1873 saying that a Mrs. Cornish, Cornish's wife, has visited Minnesota. And she's got all kinds of new jewelry on because Gordon paid up and Cornish bought his wife new jewelry. Okay. There is a hitch here in that Cornish quite famously abandoned his wife in Ontario before he moved to Winnipeg and then took a mistress here. Ah. So Mrs. Cornish might be his wife or the story might be a lie. Right. Or I guess it could be his mistress going by mrs Mrs. cornish Cornish? i don't know we have no idea yeah it's a weird thing we're like it might be true i kind of hope cornish didn't get paid i think that would be kind of a little just desserts (laughs) for a guy that generally sucked yeah so we don't really know what happened with that one he may or may not have gotten paid but some people are getting a little suspicious not everyone Uh uh-huh but gordon also begins to realize that people are catching on to him so he had maybe been planning something for a while. There's some evidence that he had been buying supplies for a trip for a while. Like some receipts where he's like buying oxen mm-hmm. from the McKays and stuff. But um, following all of the kidnapping attempts, he heads out to Poplar Point to hunt. Okay. It essentially vanishes. <laughs> That's funny because I was just going to say if I were him, this would be about the time when I would get yeah. out of town. So people in Winnipeg are like, oh, he's going out to Poplar Point. Like he might make a run for it. Yeah. And there's rumors that he's going to essentially head out towards British Columbia and then take the proverbial slow boat to China (laughs) to escape justice. And Henry Clark at this point, who has been essentially defending Gordon in court about the kidnapping attempt, is also like, we maybe shouldn't let this guy go. Yeah. So he issues a warrant for Gordon's arrest. Oh, no. (laughs) And he sends loose the Manitoba Provincial Police. And they do also need Gordon for the trial. Like, he's wandered off kind of mid-August. Okay. So the trial hasn't concluded yet. Right. And he is the main witness because he was the one that was kidnapped. Yeah. So they need him here that's, for the trial. And he's just left. Your, your kidnapping victim up- disappear. Here. Yeah. So they're like, oh, we need him here. And this is seeming real, real bad. Yeah. So they issue a warrant for his arrest. And they get Richard Power, the chief of police, to sort of go and hunt him down. And Power goes on this long, zigzagging manhunt. I mean, I don't know how you hunt someone down in 1872. Do you just wander around and see if people have seen him? Yeah. I guess. Yeah. So Powers at this time is about 24 or 25. So he's younger than us. And he's on this huge manhunt. And he was described as a paper as a fine looking man, magnificently proportioned, every inch a soldier with the current that with a courage that nothing could daunt. Wait, but what are, what are his hands and feet like? They don't say. Oh, darn. I assume not as impressive as Gordon's because he's maybe <laughs> done some like hard work. Yeah. So I, I just love the way they describe like men really like he was large, yeah. <laughs> large and powerful. We're all very impressed <laughs> with the largeness of this man. Yeah. So while all of this international stuff is playing out, Gordon is slowly trekking his way across Manitoba and Powers is trying to find him. Yeah. So Powers heads out to Oak Point on August 13th and then only he comes back for supplies within like a couple of days. He's like, this is going to take a while. I need more stuff than I have. Mm-hmm. And then he heads up for Portage La Prairie on August 20th with three wagons. And they wind up continuing all the way across the Manitoban border into what is now Saskatchewan. So they're across the provincial borders now. Yeah. And at some point here, Powers just ditches most of the wagons and goes largely alone. Hmm. They uh, follow Gordon to Fort Ellis and they learn that they've actually seen his friend Pentland in the area. Okay. And using that, they actually managed to 
sort of weave around enough to find Gordon in Torchwood Hills with enough provision that seemed like he was actually going to try and head all the way across Western Canada. Wow. So he had a lot with him. The catch is that once he is arrested, Gordon tries to argue that he's just out camping for fun and relaxation before his big trial. (laughs) You know what I often do before my kidnapping trial in which I'm the main witness? I leave the province. I leave the province for an extended camping vacation in which I tell no one where I'm going. With a number of wagons and a guide and a bunch of food. A bunch of oxen that I bought. (laughs) Yep. So Gordon does give in once confronted and agrees to go back to Winnipeg. He looks like a man hounded to death, apparently. Huh. And I mean, he's, he's a fancy man. He's probably not used to running all across the country. No, probably not. <laughs> I mean, he's been living relative luxury for a while, at yeah. least. So someone, there's an estimate that Powers had traveled 640 kilometers in the hunt wow. to find Gordon. Jeez. And against all odds, people in Winnipeg are still on his side when Gordon <laughs> comes back. Oh, Winnipeg. They're like, this guy seems cool. They pay for his bail. They let him live out in Hattingly. <laughs> no notes. They're just like, this guy seems legitimate. We have no questions. This guy seems great. <laughs> yeah. So he's living at the time with Abigail Corbett out in Hattingly. The timeline for when he moves out there is a little messy. Who's, who's that? Oh, I'm going to tell oh, you. Okay. This is a whole thing. So um, Abigail Corbett, as always, we don't know a whole lot about the wife. But her husband's Griffin Owen Corbett. And he became the subject of a pretty big scandal about a decade earlier when he had attempted to induce an abortion for Maria Thomas. Oh. And this becomes a huge thing. Maria Thomas is the teenage servant he's been having an affair with. Oh, jeez. And Corbett is arrested and is only released on bail when a ginormous mob forms outside of the jail to let him loose. Oh. So Corbett goes to trial, is found guilty but is then broken out of jail by a second mob. Uh, why do we love him so much? Unclear. No okay. one knows. So the leader of this mob is then arrested. This is James Stewart. He's a local school teacher. He's arrested for leading a mob. Yeah. Guess what happens to him? What? A mob breaks him out of jail. No! <laughs> That's too many mobs. Yeah. This is actually a tour story of mine that I would tell when I was working downtown where I'd be like, if your teacher got arrested, would you like break him out of jail? And then and were the kids always like, no. Yeah, it was a fun joke. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, this is a thing that happened. There was a three mob jailbreak. <laughs> and after that, they, they, did they just give up on arresting the mob members? Yeah. Uh, Corbett leaves the country. Okay. He goes to England in 1864 and then his family stays behind and then Ab- Abigail Corbett begins running a boarding house. Okay. And then in 1873, this is where Gordon lands up. Okay. He's staying with her. Pentland is her nephew because he marries her niece or something okay. weird. The family tree there is confusing. They're related somehow. Sure. In the way that a lot of people are related in yeah. Manitoba in the 1870s. But um, once Gordon gets to Headingley, he tries to accuse Clark of a variety of crimes, including extortion. What? Yeah. So he's trying to be like, oh, well, like the attorney general tried to extort me for tens of thousands of dollars. And like, because I didn't pay, that's why he arrested me. Okay. That's the argument he's trying to make right. here. So he's trying to say, I'm not a criminal. I was just extorted by yeah. Clark. And the thing is, Clark had only really been to visit Gordon once before he'd made bail. There were numerous witnesses who were like, Clark didn't do that. Huh. So that didn't happen. And then Gordon apologizes. What? <laughs> it's just the end. He's like, I'm sorry. So Gordon hangs around Headingley until the next year, basically. He stays there through the winter. Okay. He hangs around. And... By the next year, things have kind of fizzled out. People aren't quite as interested anymore. Gordon's still there. They're like, he's fine. We like him well enough. He's yeah. not causing any problems. <laughs> and, like, a lot of stuff is going on 
at the time in Winnipeg, there's still warrants out for Andrews Lapine for his uh, role in the Red River Resistance. Uh-huh. So, like, there's other things going on that are right. much more provincially important. Yes. Including in sort of late summer of 1874, the push for Winnipeg to be incorporated as a city. Mm. So the focus has shifted way off of Gordon. Yeah. This is just a guy who's hanging out now after... I mean, a number of crimes. Apparently, we don't even think he's a criminal. We're just like, it's just a guy. No, no, we don't care that much. Yeah. Things have, people have not forgotten things across the border, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, Clark tries to go to Minneapolis only to be recognized by a number of people. He is assaulted twice <gasps> during one visit to St. Paul. Oh, my goodness. The first time he's struck with um, a police billy club by a mob, he recovers. Oh, then when he's trying to leave, Michael Hoy finds him, the cop involved in the kidnapping, and Michael what? Hoy beats him up. Why? <laughs> Because he arrested them and caused this whole thing, I guess. But then, by July of the next year, things are about to go wrong for Gordon as well. Because Jay Gould hasn't stopped digging. Okay. This rich guy's not going to forget this, right? That's a million dollars. Right. So this is the rich guy from New York who's had all his money. Stolen. Stolen. And has been trying for a while to catch this guy. Yeah. So when the initial trial had been going on in New York, Gould had reached out to people in England, had begun to put some of the pieces together. Mm Mm-hmm. But Gordon had left before they could ever use them. Right. But he didn't forget and he kept working on this. Okay. So what we learned through all of this is that Gordon's con man career hadn't begun in North America. He'd actually been at it for a while in the UK as well. Jeez. (laughs) So the first appearance of Lord Gordon Gordon overall is in 1868. At which point he's posing as the Earl of Glencairn and had used his status to get invitations to parties. And then he'd befriend people and get them to give them things. Right. Normal con man stuff. So his lie at the time is that his uncle is the official Earl of Glencairn. He's set to inherit the estate in a number of years. Ah. So, like, he will have money. Classic. Yeah. As I say, it's like that Gregory Peck movie where he's about to, like, inherit money if he does something. Do you remember that one? Uh, which, Where no. he, like, takes out a bunch of money on loan. No, you'd have to tell me the name of the You watched this movie. I'm sure I did. Anyway. I've watched a lot of Gregory Peck movies. Essentially, he's taking things out on loan with the promise that he will have the money to pay it back later. Right. He just doesn't right now. So, he actually employs, like, a valet and winds up becoming acquainted with the firm Marshall and Sons, where he borrows jewelry and money and starts giving those out as gifts to people. Okay. And then, um, shortly before he's due to inherit the Glencairn estate in 1870, mm-hmm. he vanishes. Mm, interesting. <laughs> he stole around 25,000 pounds from Marshall and Sons. This is something like 3 million pounds today. Wow. And he stole overall about 12 million pounds from multiple people. That's insane. It's a lot of money. I so, feel like you don't have to keep conning if you've stolen that much money. Just go hang out in Canada. <laughs> yeah, you would think, right? Yeah. So after this, he vanishes and then comes to Minneapolis. Yeah. But Thomas Smith of Marshall and Sons is also looking for Gordon. Right. So around the time the New York scandal happens, he becomes acquainted with Jake Gould's lawyers. Mm. And then when Gordon flees, Smith comes to Toronto to try and track him down. They try and get a warrant. They can't get one. and They have no idea where Gordon went. They actually hire a PI to try and find him. They just lose the trail. Huh. They think he might have gone like to Montreal or maybe to Halifax. They no idea. I'm surprised they even managed to make the connection because, like, he changed his name and everything. He was still going by Gordon Gordon in some capacity. Okay. So, like, the Gordon Gordon thing hadn't changed a whole lot. Gotcha. He just had, like, a different title and he was mm. being a little bit quieter about it right. in the States, I think, because people had to, like, work to get to him. Yeah. That way. So, the trail goes cold when they're looking at this in, like, 1872. And it's way too late to do anything until 1874 when people find out where he is okay because he has been kidnapped and they know he's now in manitoba (laughs) 
So following the kidnapping, Smith comes back to Toronto and this time actually gets a proper Canadian warrant. Mm. And he heads out with a uh, members of the Toronto Police Department. They send Alexander Monroe to Winnipeg along with um, a traveling party of a Mr. Reed and Mr. Hardy. Okay. We don't really know who they are. Mm-hmm. Some sources say they're with the police. Some say they're with Marshall and Sons. Some okay. say they're like weird New York guys. It's huh. really unclear who these people are. Right. So Gordon, meanwhile, is trying to uh, claim this is all a smear campaign by Gould. <laughs> And then, around July of 1874, he holds a lavish party and begins giving away all sorts of generous gifts to his friends. Ah, that's a good way to get out of um, people thinking you're a con man. Yeah, so there's a couple of sources that are a little vague about when the party happened. It's unclear if it did. It didn't make the papers, if so, but right. it was out in Headingley, so it may not have been like the social event of the season right. in town. What we do know is that uh, Agnes Schultz, John Christian Schultz's widow, when she passed away, had a number of Gordon's things in her estate sale, including mm. letters he had written. Okay. So, like, some of his stuff is at the archives. Oh, cool. Yeah. So, uh, Monroe and everyone reach Winnipeg not long after this party is held. They meet with Gilbert McMicken, who was in our City Hall episode. He's the guy who worked for the Secret Service to stop Fenian raids. Oh, okay. He has to approve the warrant. Okay. And he does, and he agrees to go with everyone to arrest uh, Gordon out in Headingley. And they head out to Abigail Corbett's house on August 1st. They interrupt Gordon mid-nap. Oh. And he asks if he can finish it. <laughs> and they tell him no. Yeah. So they tell him no. And at this point, Gordon seems a bit worried about the route they're going to take back to Toronto. He asks if they're going through Canada or through the States. Uh-huh. So he's having some sort of like, is this a second kidnapping plot, but a slightly fancier one. Yeah. <laughs> and then they assure him that's not the plan. They're going through Canada. It's a Canadian warrant. He's not going to the States. I guess maybe he's also just worried that the Americans are going to beat him up. Yes. So he heads to his room to get warmer clothes. He grabs a loaded pistol from his bedside table <gasps> and he shoots himself. Oh my god. Yep. Oh no. Yeah. Oh Gordon, you could have got out of it again. Maybe not. Well, maybe. You have two different governments closing in on you. But like how long would he he have been in jail for even? For Who all knows? This? I don't know. It's unclear. Yeah. So they hold an inquest not long after the death. People in Winnipeg are also still on Gordon's side for what oh, it's worth. Geez. Um, so Abigail Corbett actually testifies on the stand that Gordon had previously sworn to her to never be taken alive. Oh, no. Which is, just for what it's worth, a weird thing to tell your landlady. <laughs> yeah, very weird, actually. <laughs> so, yeah, they have an inquest. They figure it's just a suicide to avoid being arrested. Yeah. And having all of these sort of lies unravel in front of everyone. Mm-hmm. But there's a pretty decent level of loyalty among people in town still. They're mad at McMicken for approving the warrant, for going along. They think it may have been a kidnapping attempt. Like, the inquest is held to prove that he wasn't going to be kidnapped again. Right. They're still concerned this was a second attempt. Right. So people haven't, like, actually forgotten. And at the inquest, his friend Pentland also reveals that Gordon had come to Manitoba with about $1,600 in his pocket, and when he died, he only had 37 cents. Hmm. No one knows where any of his things went. He gave some of it away. Right. And he, so he mailed off some of his belongings. Yeah. Well, he mailed some of his belongings off somewhere else in Canada, but Corbett hadn't seen where they were mailing it to, so just as he mailed his belongings somewhere else. Oh, so there's like someone else in Canada who Who is... might have this stuff. Yeah. We don't know. That's so crazy. So yeah, Gordon's buried out in Headingley. And it's very strange that people in Winnipeg are still like, we love this guy. Yeah. Like, is he buried as, like, Lord Gordon Gordon? I think it's unmarked because okay. it was a suicide, so it wasn't an official right. grave. It was outside of the cemetery right. and then yeah. slowly the cemetery moved to, like, encroach on the non... Mm-hmm. I don't know what it is. The non-religious ground, essentially. So okay. he's part of it now, but he wasn't officially right. when he was buried. 
But all of this leaves us with like a really big question, which is, who is this guy? Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. Do we have any idea who he actually is? None. None. No. So there are theories. <gasps> okay. But nothing has been proven. And I, I don't know. Nothing seems like fully believable to me. It's all right. a little weird. So we know he used a number of aliases, including Lord Glencairn, Herbert Hamilton, Gort, George Hubert Smith, and Gordon Harcourt Gordon. But these are all names he used after 1868. Right. Before that point. This guy just kind of appears. So, apparently Pentland had mentioned at the inquest that Gordon had mentioned having a sister in Scotland and his brothers had died. Okay. And Pentland never got any more specific and didn't really dig because it was just a friend of his. Yeah. He's not trying to, like, get a secret out of him. Yeah. But people have been trying to dig because this is a story in Minneapolis and New York and in Manitoba. So there's lots of different people who are trying to figure out who this guy is, even today. This is still a pretty active thing in Minneapolis. Huh. It's a huge part of Minneapolis history, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the theories comes from a Toronto Mail story a couple years after the thing happens, claiming um, that Gordon was the illegitimate son of a Reverend Hussey in Kent. Hmm. And Dr. Hussey is a real person. He has been credited with discovering Neptune, but that's debated if he did or not. I don't know. It's a science history thing where, like, people say he did, but he may not have because planets are weird. (laughs) Um, So the Toronto Mail claims that uh, Hussey had an affair with someone, the woman had Gordon, they placed him in a boarding school under the name John Hamilton. Hmm. That he bounces around, uh, becomes a clergyman for a little bit, or poses as one, and then graduates and then becomes Lord Gordon Gordon. Right. Another source that came out not long after... Gordon's death claims that his parents were both thieves and hadn't been involved in a large jewelry smuggling operation in the Isle of Jersey. Huh. And then his name was Laud Hamilton Gordon. So, like, L-A-U-D? What? Yeah, I don't know. (laughs) Okay. And then there was a different one that claimed, like, his father had been involved in some, like, war in India. Right. But I did actually check that one out, and the timeline does not make any sense. I I mean, I don't know if any of those are right. The first one sounds the most Believable. believable to me, partly because I feel like that could go some way to explaining why he was such a weird con man if he had been sort of neglected and bounced yeah. around as a kid. But yeah, who knows? Yeah. It's a bizarre story. That's so weird. And I mean, what answer can there be? Like, he was just some dude. I mean, it's probably what it was, is the like, thing, even but it's if we, so boring. Even if we knew his name, it would just be like, oh, he was just a guy. A guy. <laughs> I mean, yeah, with every passing year, it becomes a little less relevant, because what does it matter who he was? Yeah. We know when he appeared and like, started causing problems. Yeah. My, that's an incredible story. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. And also, this all happened in, like, a span of five or six years. Yeah. (laughs) This is 1868 until 1874. That is the timeline of all of this. And the stuff in Manitoba was, like, what, two years? Yeah, not that much. And it's a huge incident. My favorite thing is the whole time we're like, no, love this guy. We just never stopped. He comes up in papers for years later. And was like, yeah, remember the guy that was, like, a con man? Wasn't he neat? We don't know who he was. (laughs) He was so cool. He was friends with James McKay. There was never, like, an air of, like, look at this criminal. It's just like, isn't this guy kind of neat? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is really... The uh, New York Times and, like, New York press were a little less kind about him after. So they're like, oh, this criminal is dead, thank God. Yeah. Not us. No. We're just like, how dare you take this weird guy away from us? Yeah. Well, I guess he was kidnapped and then ended up killing himself. I mean, that's all quite, quite tragic. Oh, it's very sad. Yeah. You know, if you know him as a friend of yours, that's, yeah. that's awful. That's sad. rough. Yeah. And, like... What a brutal way to, like, end a life of quite an adventure, if nothing else, yeah. right? Yeah. Jeez. So, yeah, that is um, where that spiraled out <laughs> from Deer Lodge in a bear that drank soda. Okay. <laughs> this, this, 
This is what came of all of that. Oh, that's incredible. <laughs> yeah, that is our full episode on a weird kidnapping con man saga that... Well, thank you for regaling us with that. <laughs> I, I feel truly regaled. <laughs> I'm so glad. Also, it's I love a good con story. Oh, amazing. I love true crime, but I don't like the murder, so this is like oh, the perfect yeah. sweet spot. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that is our episode on Lord Gordon. Gordon, there's lots more online for like different things he did in other states. The Minneapolis Historical Society has done a lot of research on this. Right. The New York Press has done a little less, but like... He's in the New York papers a lot in the 1870s. If There's... you want to learn more about the stock aspect of yeah, it. If you, if you care a lot about stock market manipulation, look at the New York stuff. Yeah. But it is interesting to see this con man sort of bounce around all the different things. So there's lots on him. There's actually an opera written about him. Really? Yeah, in that's... Minneapolis. Oh, that's super Because people are really invested in this guy in Minneapolis, right. which is really interesting. <laughs> Oh, so, I yeah. feel like this is a nice little meeting place for Minneapolis and Winnipeg. It's a little Canadian-American crossover, which yeah. you don't often get in our really niche episodes on, like, City Hall or Milk. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we have an exciting new segment for you guys called Collecting Conversations, where we sit down with archivists and curators in Winnipeg and talk about things in their collection that help us tell Winnipeg's history, Manitoba's history. Um. I have a fun archives joke to throw in here also. Oh, okay. I've threatened this when we talked about it as a segment. We're uh -huh. very fond of archives, and that's uh -huh. why we did this. <laughs> anyway, our first interview that is... That one only works if you know. <laughs> I, don't, that... I don't get it. <laughs> <laughs> this is a joke for no one. You're welcome to Tom. Archiv archivists contain fonds. It's, a, it's, a... <laughs> it's what the collections are called. Yes. It's like a little collection item called a font. Uh, Jokes are always funnier when you have to explain <laughs> them at length. Anyway, our first conversation is uh, with John Benson with Wrench, and he's helping to build a cycling archive in Winnipeg. Hi, and welcome to Collecting Conversations, our new segment all about Manitoba archives and the museums and the interesting stories they can help us tell about our history. Our first ever guest is not actually an archivist, but he's helping to build a new cycling archive in Winnipeg. We're joined by John Benson with The Wrench. Probably the best place to start is uh, telling us a bit about yourself in Wrench and the Cycling Archives and how this has started. Yeah, yeah. So um, my name is uh, John Benson and I, I work at The Wrench. I do, I'm sort of like a special events coordinator there. Um, so I sort of take on special projects uh, like this uh, Cycling Archive project, which we got some funding through the Winnipeg Foundation to uh, basically assemble an archive of everything related to the promotion of cycling in Manitoba in history. Uh, so it's, it's fairly broad um, and it's very exciting. Uh, and thankfully we have some help from some staff at the city of Winnipeg archives who are sort of helping us guide us along because we know a lot about bikes, but we don't know much about archives. <laughs> um, yeah. And then uh, I guess the one last part of the question, uh, the wrench, uh, stands for the Winnipeg Repair Education and Cycling Hub, and uh, we are a, a nonprofit registered charity um, that works to promote cycling uh, and eliminate barriers to cycling uh, for people in the city of Winnipeg. And uh, a large part of that comes through workshops with uh, with youth in terms of learning how to um, build and repair your own bicycle. And um, yeah, we've got many different programs uh, over the years, and we're now in year 11 or 12 i think i think it was 2011 when the wrench uh, first started awesome that's also cool yeah um so we wanted you to come on and talk about a specific item in your collection and you had mentioned getting a bunch of stuff about a critical mass rally in 2006 yeah it's uh gotten a lot of stuff about this um from 
from many different uh, local folks who have, who have submitted uh, documents surrounding these critical mass rides of, of 2006. And so uh, I guess that would require maybe a bit of explanation. Um, I won't assume yeah. that. Uh, yeah, what is a critical mass ride? Yeah, yeah, okay. So, so critical mass rides were these things that started in like the early 90s in San Francisco. And basically they were sort of brought together by, by people who had a love of cycling and uh, generally like, you know, like it were, was sort of like a protest ride against car culture, uh, essentially. Okay. And it it's not like a formal group, never was a formal group. Um, it's sort of like a sort of build itself as like a leaderless fun bike ride uh, mm -hmm. as a assembling like-minded people to go for a bike ride and sort of challenge consumer culture and car culture in the process. Um, and at some point uh, that made its way to Winnipeg. Uh, I'm not exactly sure when, uh, and I haven't talked to anyone who does know when like the first ride <laughs> took place, um, but they were happening in the 2000s. And then in um, May of 2006, there was actually two rides. So the regular rides in, in Winnipeg would take place at the last Friday of every month. At that point, like just in the, you know, sort of like the, the warmer months, you know, mm -hmm. people weren't doing it in the winter. Um, but there were two rides that happened in May 2006, and one was on May 3rd, which was a ride that was actually organized in protest of um, a, a military operation that had actually been scheduled to happen downtown. Um, they were doing an Operation Charging Bison, it was called, and the military was essentially sort of, you know, I wasn't there actually, so I'm not sure exactly how it all worked out, but they were, they were doing a large scale like sort of military exercise in downtown in the exchange. And so a group of about 60 riders got together and did a critical mass ride that day to sort of protest the militarization of downtown Winnipeg. And uh, that, that ride was met with um, a large group of police who knew about the ride that was going to take place and confronted that ride. And that led to uh, a handful of of arrests and charges uh, for, for mm -hmm. riders who were taking part in that ride. Um, and then on May 26th, a few weeks later, there was the regularly scheduled critical mass ride. And um, that one, interestingly enough, like at this point, they, they, they now knew that the cops were very well aware of them and didn't really like what they were doing. Um, and so there were actually people in advance who handed out disposable cameras to riders to, oh, to, no. to, yeah, as a way of like being like, hey, something might happen today. And, you know, if you want to take one of these and take some photos, um, we'd appreciate it. Uh, and so sure enough, that ride was stopped on a couple of occasions. And uh, at the corner of Broadway and Donald, there wound up being a huge confrontation um, where cops sort of uh, um, confronted riders and there was sort of a big melee that broke out and led to I think about there were seven arrests and charges that day and um, yeah so there's a whole whole bunch of uh, press uh, from that day and uh, afterwards um, related to those innocents and we sort of received some photos from those cameras we've received a lot of uh, newspaper articles covering it uh, as well as some video footage and just a whole bunch of a whole bunch of stuff related to those uh, those two rides. That's really cool. I'd never heard of any of that. I was like in sixth grade at the time, so that might be why. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, that yeah. was uh, it was 
it was, um, you know, and, that, and I guess that's part of the reason why we're doing this archive yeah. project. Is that, like, you know, that was in, in many ways, and I don't think for me, just for me personally, but for a lot of folks, that was like a pretty iconic or like sort of like game-changing moment for, for cycling in Winnipeg. Um, I was I was 19 at the time. Um, I was a few months away from moving out of my parents' house and had never been to a critical mass ride, but it started to hear about them. And uh, so it was very sort of like, you know, really brought to attention the lack of cycling infrastructure that was available because, I mean, it's 16 years ago now, I guess, but um, so in some ways it's hard to to place myself back then, but there was no bike lanes. There was no cycling mm -hmm. infrastructure whatsoever in the city of Winnipeg at that time. Yeah, and did you have like a favorite um, item or whatever from that archive collection that you wanted to tell us about? Yeah, I mean, I guess it's hard to say. I so I, It's hard I, to choose, I, right? <laughs> yeah, and it's it's like, and also like favorite is, is sort of interesting. Yeah, I guess there's like- I suppose when we're talking about like arrests, maybe a favorite is, is a funny word to use. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, it, it's there. There is like you know, there's some photos of of that uh, the Broadway and Donald sort of melee that that I think are the most sort of like iconic things that that stick out in my head. Like there's um, there was one incident where there was a like a plain clothes police officer uh, who didn't identify themselves and went out and grabbed a couple of people. And oh. there's there's a photo of this officer. Uh, with his knee on the head of one of the riders, like right up against the curb, oh and um, yeah, and then and, and and you're sort of piecing together as I'm receiving all these like articles and photos and stuff. You're sort of like piecing together uh, like witness statements and like photos that you're seeing and sort of uh, painting a picture of like what sort of took place in that whole uh, melee. And it's it's um, it's very interesting. To, to sort of piece all of these things together uh, for an archive. Yeah, that's very cool. I, if people want to know more about any of this, where should they go to check this out? Um, well, we are still in the, the final weeks, I guess, um, as we're talking now of collecting submissions for, uh, for this archive. Um, we have been in, in touch uh, and in constant communication with the City of Winnipeg Archives, and um, both of us would like this, uh, this archive to wind up at the City of Winnipeg Archives. Um, so um, we'll hopefully be submitting that to them in April, and then you know they'll take they'll take some time to sort of go over that and and do whatever they do on their end, which is a bit of a mystery to me. But um, <laughs> yeah, hopefully, hopefully sometime in the summer um, it will be at the City of Winnipeg Archives and will be freely accessible for for anyone to go and uh, check it out. Amazing! Thank you so much for joining us, John. Yeah, thanks for for letting me chat about it. This has been Collecting Conversations. Thank you so much for listening. Yeah, thank you so much uh, to John for sitting down with us. It was a really interesting conversation. I feel like we both learned a lot. Yeah, it was. And also, it's newer history, which is always very exciting. It's from 2006. I know. It's also just nice to feature little bits of local history. So we're really happy and excited to do more of this segment. Yeah, so keep listening. We'll be at the end of every episode. We've got lots of exciting stuff coming up with other archivists and curators and all kinds of fun things. Mm -hmm. So thank you so much for listening to all of that. Um, if you want to follow us on social media, we'll post pictures. We are on Facebook and Instagram at One Great History. We're on Twitter at the number one Great History. We are on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash One Great History, as well as WordPress, where we'll post all sorts of pictures and sources and stuff. So if you want to find other ways to read about Lord Gordon Gordon, check us out at wordpress.com forward slash One Great History. Or no, one great, great history. History. Wordpress com. Hey, what about merch?
uh, yeah, we have other exciting updates also. Um, we have merch now. If you want to look like you're a member of a defunct business's baseball team, <laughs> oh boy, do we have the stuff for you. <laughs> we got Ashdown shirts and hats and Walker Theater stuff, as well as some really nice building illustrations. Alex and Nick did all of the work. Do you guys want to talk a bit more about it? Because all I know is I found this stuff. Yeah, we uh, Nick and I have just been making, um, yeah, illustrations, I guess, based on, like, archival images. Um, I don't have too much more else to say about yeah, them. Yeah, it's they're... businesses that don't exist anymore. Yeah. So, so I... they're not copyrighted. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, yeah, and also, like, local buildings that, yeah. you know, you do still see, um, like, architectural drawings of them. And they're, they're really neat. I think they'd look cool yep. on a tote bag. They're based all on archival resources, so they're historical, but yes. they look cool. And I've I've worked very hard on these fuzzy images to try and make them uh, <laughs> something more more. And had to look at like new pictures of the building to make sure details have actually gone into them. Yeah, they look really cool. So we're on Redbubble at One Great History, and you can check all of our fun stuff out there. We'll be adding new designs as we make stuff because it's an ongoing project. Yeah, it's just fun to like you know rep Winnipeg history. Yeah, you know, having... this summer you want to be wearing your like Winnipeg Beach hat. I love the Winnipeg Beach logo. <laughs> it's my, it's so good. There's gonna be a poster too. Okay, oh. I'm, I'm saying it right now. You're committing on air. <laughs> Watch this space. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening. Mm-hmm.